Hi everyone, I'm JJ Reddick and you're listening to The Old Men in the Three. Today's show I'm excited to share is part of the Dell Technologies Small Business Podference. Small businesses are constantly looking for ways to advance their marketing strategies and grow their companies. That's why Dell Technologies assembled an all-star lineup of podcasters to create this year's virtual conference to share advice and inspiration for small businesses. I hope that you find this episode both inspiring and useful as we work together to support small businesses. Dell Technologies is here to help safeguard your business with modern devices and Windows 10 Pro and provide relevant content for your business's success. To find more participating podcasts, search for Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on the Odyssey app, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at the end of this episode. Hey everyone, it's The Old Man in the Three with me, JJ Reddick, and my co-host, Tommy Alter. We're really excited to share this podcast as part of Dell Technologies' Small Business Podference. And this discussion with my good friend, Ben Winston, will surely help any small business owner as he gives incredible insight on transforming for a new tomorrow post-COVID. We hope that you find this episode both inspiring and useful as we work together to support small businesses. Please tune in Wednesday for part two of our conversation with Ben Winston and Friday for part three of our conversation with Ben Winston. Let's get it. All right, let's welcome in my dear friend, one of my favorite people in the world, Ben Winston. Ben, this is, I believe, the fourth time that I've had you on uh, my podcast, our podcast now. But we had you on twice with Yahoo, I think, once with The Ringer, and now on The Old Man and the Three uh, for a special bonus episode uh, presented by Dell. Um, So we're going to talk a lot about just the last year, uh, the challenges of COVID for your production company, Full Well 73, and the the challenges of uh, producing The Late Late Show, which is a, a nightly show that you've had to do for the last year during COVID. Before we get to that, I think it's always important to reiterate the story of how we met. Am I supposed to reiterate? Yeah, you're you're going to tell the story. Well, firstly, I'm very honored to be back. It's been a while, I'll be honest. I've been what insults me slightly is that you were always very happy to have me on when it was Ringer, when it was Yahoo. It was like I was a regular. And then suddenly you get your own podcast that you own. I am nowhere to be seen. You're all up in Stacey Abrams grill. You're pretending that, you know, you know about Bob Iger's history. You're like flirting with all these others. And then suddenly in a in a random special about COVID, suddenly I get invited. It's an absolute shambles and a disgrace. I'm not going to lie. I don't know if it's your to blame or Tommy. I'm not sure either way. But the only positive about doing this one is that with the other podcast that you've done, I've never been sent sneakers. And that is that is. Let's go. Do you know what I mean? Branded how big time are you that you have that you guys have your own brand of shoes? That is magnificent. Do you guys have late, late, late show sneakers? Of course we don't have sneakers. We're a TV show. How do you have one for being a podcast? I couldn't get over it when they arrived in the post. We don't have we hardly have a late, late show sweater. And you're you're sending shoes up and you've done two podcasts. I couldn't believe it. But they're very nice. You can see by how white they are. Either I'm looking after them really well or they're Never making worn their them. debut today. <laughs> I'll let you decide. Um yeah, we met. We met when I first moved to Los Angeles about seven years ago, right? And uh, 
uh, we were we were in a hotel together and we were by the pool next to each other most days and i'm british so i never say hello to anybody let alone when i'm on holiday but on vacation but uh yeah i think we shared a cab right to a restaurant it was an expensive cab i i, I was i went i hadn't i'd seen you didn't know who you were and uh because i didn't follow basketball until that point because i'd lived in england and uh my whole life and then we were uh i went to the hotel lobby and said oh i'd like a cab to flora farms and they said oh it's going to be a hundred dollars because they wait there and to pick you to take you all the way back i was a hundred dollars that's a lot and then you and your wife chelsea went to the same desk and said hey we'd like a cab to flora farms and and i suddenly went oh now i will talk to him because it means i can only pay 50 bucks and so that was the actual to save 50 bucks i struck up a conversation with you and said hey how about we share a cab and to be fair, we have spoken most days since, and it's uh, and um, I love you dearly, and I'm and even if you don't have me on this new podcast of yours very often, so Tommy, I for for like three days before, I think we were celebrating my birthday and our anniversary at Ventanas in Cabo, and for three days I saw this really, really good-looking British guy walking around, who wouldn't really acknowledge anyone. He just looked very very stuffy and it turns out he's the opposite of that it's just great were you intimidated to talk to him jj well no i wasn't i but he definitely had the the look across his face that just i'm on holiday please don't mess with me we yeah. get in the cab together we realize we both are living in los angeles we realize we're both transplants in los angeles um so that was in june and by and by thanksgiving of that year you were you and mary were coming you, you were at my house for thanksgiving there's, there's two things i remember about that trip one is uh i had a moment that was very notting hill and i don't know if you've seen the movie notting hill where the where uh, hugh bonneville's character i think it's hugh bonneville he says to julia he says to julia what do you do for a living he says oh i'm in she's i'm in movies he's like oh well done i had that sort of moment when i said to jj in the back of this cab I said, uh, so what do you do? And he said, I play basketball. And I looked at him like he was an utter idiot. And I'm like, no, I mean, what do you do for a living? I don't mean your hobbies. And, uh, and he went, no, no, I, I play in the NBA. And I was like, oh, well done. Oh, good. Uh, and the other thing I remember about it was DeMarcus Cousins was also staying there that same week. And him and his girlfriend or his wife, I'm not sure which, they had donkey rides out on the beach every every day and the donkey you could see every time demarcus cousins went down to the beach to have his donkey right the donkey would be like oh not again please and it'd be like this divot in the back of the donkey when demarcus cousins would like climb on um but that's what i remember about that trip but uh it was magnificent anyway very lovely to be here tommy uh a couple days ago ben sent me his bio yeah. um just so that i had everything that he's done so that our listeners can kind of get a sense of what type of uh, career that he's had. So we should we should just kind of run through a few of these. I think it's important to kind of provide some context. It, it's quite it's quite long. Your IMDb. I, we were looking at it a couple of days ago. JJ's going to run through it. It it takes a while to get through. There's a lot. There's a lot there. What do you want me to say, Tommy? You know, I mean, they're, they're just they're just, JJ. Go run it. All you right, so run it. you don't you don't need to run it. it do it, you know, do it. Okay. No, we need we need to set it. the stage. Set the well, stage. Set it. First of all, you're the you're the partner and co-founder of Full Well seventy three. It's a production company that's based in the UK. You you run it with four of your lifelong friends. Uh, 
by day, you're the showrunner for The Late Late Show with James Corden on CBS. You've been nominated with Rob, for- I should say with Rob Crabb. We'd run yes. it together. Okay. It's not just me. It's me and Rob Crabb. Okay. All right. Big shout out to Rob. Anyway, okay. carry on. Keep going. He'll listen. <laughs> And he's amazing. So I don't want him to go, oh, hey, 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 we do that together. Why are you taking <laughs> Sure, sure. Podcast? I should have mentioned Rob. I should have mentioned Rob. Uh, 24 Emmy nominations, nine-time winner. You hold the record for most individual Emmy nominations in a single year with eight in 2019. Uh, you co-creator of Carpool Karaoke, co-creator of Drop the Mic. Um, you've done music specials with the likes of Bruno Mars and many others. Uh, One Direction music videos, One Direction specials, like it, it just it it literally spans the globe, and it spans, spans a lot of different sports, genres, sports, music, everything, live events. What have you not done? I feel like we're trying to justify to our listeners why I've been. Why <laughs> I feel like you didn't need this sort of thing for Stacey Abrams or Bob Iger, and I feel like. <laughs> We're trying to make me, you're trying to sell it. Your viewers, have, your, your listeners have tuned in and they've gone, it isn't Drew Holland. I mean, this is not a baller. It's not someone I've ever heard of. And so you're doing your best to keep the listeners there. And I appreciate that, but I feel patronized. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've had some fun. It's been great. What do you want me to say? It's all good. Yes, everything's. Uh, so I, I, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about uh, the two big projects that you've had this year, uh, yeah. in, in addition, of course, to the late, late show and the two yeah. big projects were, uh, producing the Grammys. Uh, and this is your first time being es essentially the showrunner for that. Um, yes. you had co-produced, uh, I think the last two prior years. Well, I'd sort um, of understudied. Not, understudied. Not, yes. Yeah. I, they, they asked me to do it a couple of years ago and, uh, Ken Ehrlich had done it for 40 years. He was the EP of that show. And so I think they wanted me to come on board for the year before I took over just to sort of, because it's such a monster of a show. It's three and a half hours of live TV. It's 24 live performances. It's awards, it's clips. It's So I think that rather than me, like just jumping in and taking over when I didn't really understand the show, I benefited hugely from being around it, watching what was amazing and I didn't need to change and what I thought, Oh, maybe I could do that a bit differently. So yes, but this was my first year doing it and to do it in <clears throat> when the Grammys was for the first time, not in Staples or <clears throat> not in front of 15 million, 15, sorry, thousand people in the stadium. It was a very different year to be taking over, but it was a, it was a good challenge. Um, the other, the other big project is the friends reunion show, which yes. I believe you just finished shooting recently. Yes, correct. that is correct. We did. All right. You just you have so much stuff going on. It's hard to keep track. Can you give us uh, just the listener just sort of a brief overview of Full Well seventy three? What you guys do, um, sort of the structure of your company, and and sort of what what projects you generally uh, go after. Yeah, I think that well, we've got it's a it's a company based in the UK and US. It's uh, there was four of us who ran it, lifelong friends. It was me and my like closest friend from when I was a kid, Gabe Turner, uh, his brother Ben Turner, their first cousin Leo Perlman, and the four of us essentially, we had an idea for a film when we were straight out of college, straight out of university, and it was about a group of street kids who were unbelievable soccer freestylers. They could do anything with a ball, and we had this idea that you know, and they used to raise money by just hustling on the street for like a dollar here and there and that's how they got by that's how they earned a living and and they wanted to pay tribute to their hero which was Diego Maradona because he was the all-time sort of rock and roll 
didn't give a shit sort of footballer. And, um, and so we came up with this idea for a documentary film that they would, they wanted to travel with no money for food, accommodation, travel, just every night hustling on the street, street performing, busking to see if they could meet Diego Maradona. And, and we made the film of that. We made, we didn't know what we were doing. I think I was 23, 24 years old. We were traveling around the world with a camera. They managed to get a free flight to New York. They traveled overland through North Central South America to find Diego Maradona and perform for him. Um, we came back to England with, and of course they fell out along the way. They split up. You know, it was supposed to be a self-contained movie. And on one day on the shoot, I remember one of us was in Sao Paulo. One of us was in Buenos Aires. One of us was in Vegas. And my sister was filming for us in Leeds in England. It had become such a crazy documentary. And we came home with like 200 hours of footage that we had filmed in six weeks on the road with them. We cut this film down. It was called In the Hands of the Gods. It became the biggest release ever of a UK documentary in the UK. And we were not, not commercially, it didn't do great, but it was in every cinema in the UK. And we were having this big Leicester Square premiere and they turned Leicester Square, which is almost like Times Square in the, in the UK. They turned it into like a green carpet for football and we were kids and we were like, wow, we've got this movie out in the cinema that was getting five star reviews everywhere. Um, and suddenly we were like, well, we might as well carry on this company because truthfully, we only we only launched the company to protect an idea. We had an idea that we did that we, you know, again, when we were in college with these kids, which was almost like jackass with sport. It was an entirely different idea to In the Hands of the Gods. And we pitched it to MTV and MTV essentially. I don't know if this is libelous to say it, but they sort of stole it from us. They, you know, they. They said, we love this idea. We think it's great, but we're going to do it without you because uh, your company is worth one pound. Um, and we were kids and we were like, how do we fight them? And, 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 and so in the end, we just decided actually that, that loss, that sh the show, that being taken away from us, it made us almost like double down and go, well, we're going to make full wealth something. And it sort of propelled us on this journey of In the Hands of the Gods. And then off the back of In the Hands of the Gods, Lots of talent wanted to work with us. James Corden wanted to work with us. There was a huge boy band at the time in the UK called JLS and they wanted to work with us. And David Beckham had seen some stuff that we did. So we started shooting some promos for him. And so suddenly we became this company that worked with a lot of talent. And, and One Direction was one of those people who wanted to work with us. And that was when before they were anything. And then over that seven years that they became the biggest band on the planet, the stuff that we were making for a hundred grand, suddenly we were making the Sony movie that grossed nearly 80 million dollars so we sort of grew with the talent that we started making shows for um and james corden had been one of my closest mates since we were 18 we met when i was a pa getting people coffee on a small drama small scripted show and when he got the offer of the late late show said to me you know they're looking for a producer to make the show because actually i was thinking about this the other day i had dinner with somebody um in television and they asked me how did you end up in america and i hadn't even thought about this story and i remembered it um so james had said to cbs look there's this producer in the uk called ben winston there's this company called 4173 i've done a lot of work with them i'd really love you to meet them um so leslie moonves was sort of the godfather of television and and he, he you know he ran cbs he used to run warner brothers when warner brothers you know cast friends and er and then he takes over cbs he makes it the number one network in america he was without question the most powerful man in television and i remember i get this phone call from james saying look they, they'll meet you they're, they're going to meet you to you guys running the late late show and i was like oh my god this is incredible so i remember taking mary with me and mary went to the pub my wife is meredith and we went to the pub 
uh, that night and I said, I'm going to go to LA for a day and I'm meeting Leslie Moonves for dinner to discuss me running the Late Late Show for while running it. And she was like, amazing. Who's Leslie Moonves? And I was like, ah, he's the most powerful man on TV. Um, and so I remember, I think I like went and thought, like, thought for like three days, what should I wear? And like, I think I got my hair cut and I had a shave and like, you know, I was like, okay, you know, I've got to be ready. But this is a big moment. You know, I made TV shows in the UK and suddenly I was fly being flown out, paid for by CBS to go and meet Les Moonves to potentially take over one of the five network late night shows. You know, there's one on ABC, there's two on NBC, there's two on CBS. They are the five. You know, there's loads of other amazing shows, uh, including yours, Tommy, too, um, with Deez and Mera. But like there's five network ones. And, and so I was very aware of that history and heritage. Um, so I flew out to meet him and I was supposed to meet him at, you know, 7.30 at Sunset Tower. And I'm like thinking this is a big moment. And I've like, you know, the, and I was staying in some hotel on Sunset Boulevard, like really trendy one where they have no furniture and they think that's cool. It was one of those. You like, you wake up and you think you've been robbed. And actually, no, no, that's just, it's just cool to have a white blanket. Um, and like, I was like, I'm in LA, I'm in Hollywood. I've made it, it's Town, And, uh, and I walk into Sunset Tower and the, you know, French maitre d's there and he's, you know, doesn't, you know, looking at me like, I don't recognize this guy, so I'm not going to be nice to him. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm here to have, <clears throat> I'm here to have uh, dinner with Leslie Moonves. Uh, and I was nervous. I was nervous. My hands were a bit sweaty, I remember. And he's like, you're here for Leslie Moonves. And I was like, yes, yes, I am. He's like, come straight this way. Suddenly, like, you know, everybody else is like pushed out the way if you're Les's guest. Forget about it. Women like just pushed with their martini glasses to the side. And I walk and I can see Les and he's, you know, checking his phone or whatever. And I can see him there sat at the table and walks across and like my heart's going, okay, here we go. This will be fun, right? Like, you know, I'm meeting Les to talk about this late, late show and blah, blah, blah. And I sit down at the table and I say, hey, I'm Ben. Very nice to meet you. And he says, good to meet you. And in that good to meet you, that, you know, that four words, my heart absolutely sunk. Because I realized in that split second that he was doing a favor to James Corden. I realized that in that moment, he wasn't meeting a 30 year old from 31 year old from Britain to take over the late night show on the network. He was meeting it because the guy who had signed to do it, James Corden, had said, Hey, will you meet my mate? And Leslie goes, Sure, I'll meet you, mate. And in that moment, I felt embarrassed in a way because I was like, First, I'd spent some good money on a jacket, but also I was like, I was naive to think on that plane ride when I'm traveling first class and sipping a champagne on the plane that actually this was a realistic thing. And I felt like, ah, I, I, I should have I protected my heart in a way and known that this was not necessarily a realistic thing as somebody who had never produced anything in America before and only had credits in Britain. Um, and of course, why wouldn't he say yes to the meeting when you're new talent who you've just signed? So I sort of sat there and he looked at the menu and we small talked for a little bit, but I couldn't really get. I could, and he, but just to, for the record, he was unbelievably polite to me. He absolutely, I want to say, was not rude in any way. I had just realized that this is one of the busiest, most important men in TV. And I was without question, the least important meeting of the day that he had had on a very, very busy day. Um, and but I want to definitely clarify, it wasn't him being disrespectful or rude in any way. I just sort of felt naive about it. So we sat there and I sort of, you know, made small talk with him and he asked where I lived and what I was up to and was more interested in the menu in a way, you know, and I was too, I was pretending to read the menu, whereas all I was thinking was what an idiot I've been. 
And so we ordered food and something happened inside of me during that meeting. And it's really funny thinking about it now. I sort of had been nervous and I'd been thinking about how I was going to do it. And I was going to be polite and charming. And I was just like, I have no chance of getting this job. I'm no, ch- and I'm probably never going to meet this guy again. So I'm just not going to give a, I don't know if we can swear on your podcast. I don't want to, we can, like, I don't want to get, I'm not, I just didn't give a, f- I was like, that's it. Uh, this is my one dinner with him and I'm going to tell him what this show should be. So he, so I said, well, listen, I'm, thank you for meeting me to discuss the show. I've had some thoughts on it. You know, suddenly I was like front foot. I was like, go, let's go. And he was like, okay, yeah. What are you thinking? And I launched into a monologue of talking about how network television needed to embrace the digital age or it was dead and how James as a performer would be wasted if he was doing a late night show and how I'd advised him at first not to do it because I didn't think they'd utilize his talents enough and how he was a guy who could sing, he could dance, he could act, he could be in sketches. He's interesting and interested. And I launched into this whole speech about who James was and how late night needed somebody like him and how he was the smartest appointment. But if you get the show wrong, then you'll have always wasted getting the smartest appointment. And I talked about everything from like doing bits online to making the studio 360 with guests walking through, bringing guests out at the same time to make it more of a party. I just went for it, literally went for it. And I remember during it, he sort of became more and more engaged as it went, as this sort of monologue went on. And We ate our food. He asked me a few questions. Then Julie Chen arrived. And I sensed that this was my, I I should drop the mic and go. Not outstay my welcome. And I just went, well, real pleasure meeting you. And he went, I knew I had, I'll never forget this. He said, I knew I had the right guy in James Corden to host this show. I just don't think I ever realized what the show was. And I walked out, went, well, very nice to meet you. And I walked out thinking, I don't know if that means I've just given him a load of ideas or if I'm going to be running the show. I genuinely wasn't sure. Uh, And I got on the plane that next day and I flew back. And by the time I landed, they'd made an offer and it was a great offer. And they were like, no, no, you're running the show. And from that moment onwards, Leslie always trusted me and Rob to run the show. And, uh, And that really was the thing that... Uh, catapulted everything that's happened for us out here it was that dinner at the sunset tower that night that in a way changed my life really that changed my life without question and and, uh yeah it was it was a really defining moment for me this episode is just one of many podcasts included in the small business podference presented by dell technologies This podcast conference has been created to encourage and inspire small businesses while covering topics like new business strategies, influencer marketing, and beyond. Learn from top names in the podcast world like Jill Schlesinger from Jill on Money, Rhett and Link of Ear Biscuits, and many more. To find more participating podcasts, search for Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on the Odyssey app, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at the end of this episode. Ben, you mentioned the the online part, and can you just talk about the importance of really your YouTube channel for the Late Late Show, especially in the early days, in terms of growing the show, the buzz for the show? It's essentially how uh, you know Carpool Karaoke got its start. You eventually sold Carpool Karaoke to Apple. Um, you know, and this this just to sort of parallel with something that you know Tommy and I are doing. You know when we were doing shows with Yahoo, with The Ringer, uh, really prior to Zoom, we put a few episodes on The Ringer YouTube channel. 
Um, still the then, most popular, still the most popular <laughs> episodes on the Ringer YouTube yeah. for the yeah, Lakers. Really. Yeah, still. Jimmy Butler, Zion, yeah, right. the ones we did there. Um, so when we started three four two. Uh, and we're going to do our own show. Like we recognized right away, like we needed to have a YouTube channel. We needed to have a place uh, for people to watch these videos. And right now, of course, we're just doing these on Zoom, uh, you know, because of COVID. We're going to get into this later, just about the difficulties of producing stuff and making content in COVID. Um, but how? Just your thought process on on putting that stuff on YouTube, and and also for the network. I would assume it's going to affect their ratings a little bit. Was there any pushback from them? Yeah, there was. There was pushback. I mean, I think that I remember, again, that was where Les came in useful because I remember calling him about it because the digital, the CBS Interactive were like, you have to, we have to put commercials on the, we have to put commercials on the, uh, all the clips. And I remember getting, arguing with them saying, no, 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 no one knows who James Corden is. Just give us like the first three or four months, just give us a YouTube channel with no commercials. Just do that for us on the first three months. Let us build an audience. Because if you don't know who this late night host is and you've got to sit through a 30 second commercial, I might not have that attention span for long enough. And therefore I've clicked onto something else if I don't know the host. And again, you know, I remember I would call Les and he'd be like, sure, if that's what you want to do, if that's what you think is going to make us successful, then so be it. And they backed us on things like that. I think for us, you know, we were making, we, no one thinks James is better than I do, apart from James, maybe. James and I are James's biggest fans. And even we can't stay up till 12.30 at night and watch our show. Like, you have to be an insane person to be watching television after midnight. You do. It's just, it's, it's a bizarre thing in America that, like, in England, TV's packed up by 11.15. Everybody's in bed. You're mad. But here, it's like, that's when we start spending money. Jimmy Fallon hasn't even come on by the time England have gone to bed. It's like, it's an insane thing that you've done out here, but it's the way that that America has always been. Um, but now we're in a world where network numbers without question are, are, are falling. You can see that in the Oscars. You can see that in the Super Bowl. Uh, sadly, you could see it in the Grammys too. And so people have got to be making television in a different way. The numbers on network television were always falling. The pandemic has accentuated that in a huge way because there was nothing to come to network television for like six or seven months. So people went, oh, well, I'll try Netflix out or I'll try Amazon or Apple. And suddenly they were like, oh, this is cool. I, maybe I don't need these commercials anymore. And so our kids are also growing up. My daughter isn't waking up in the morning and saying, dad, what time is Peppa Pig on? She's saying, I want to watch Peppa Pig now. And so therefore they're not growing up like we did with a schedule. So I was aware of that. We were all aware of that. All of us were, which is why we always made sure that everybody who worked on our show knew that we weren't making a show for 1230 at night. We were making a show that launched at 1230 at night. And that is the mentality that everyone who worked here have to go from. Our competition isn't Seth Meyers, who's on at the same time. Our competition is Ellen. It's the morning news. It's Fallon. It's whoever is out there in the content business. And they had to shift in their way of thinking at CBS financially and go well actually maybe it's about product placement maybe it's about doing a i remember we did like a deal with mcdonald's where like everyone had like carpool karaoke on their fries and like we had to think of like different ways of how you monetize it selling spin-offs you know if we hadn't invested in the youtube channel then we wouldn't have been able to prove to apple with carpool karaoke when we sold them the spin-off which is now four seasons in three emmys in we wouldn't have been able to prove to them that they should buy it so, yes, CBS may have lost a little bit of money in the short term by 
giving their content away for free on YouTube. But ultimately, that I don't think more people are going to, I don't think people are going to go, you know what, I can't watch it on YouTube. I am going to stay up till 1 a.m. It's just not the way people work. So we had to use what we did with YouTube, whether it be selling drop the mic or carpool or brand integrations. We had to just think about our show differently. Um, and it's the same with COVID now. It's like, how can we, what are we going to do that keeps us current, that keeps us interesting, whether it be with the Grammys, Friends or Late Late Show, you can't just go, well, let's just try and carry on as normal, keep our heads in the sand. Back then, only care about our time slot, which we didn't do. We cared about the digital age. And today it can't be like, well, let's just have a year of rubbish programs and then hopefully COVID will go away. It's been about, for all of our shows, in very different ways, it's been about, no, no, let's, let's change it. Let's work out what we're not allowed to do, work out what we are allowed to do and totally change everything to make it brilliant. And that was definitely the ethos I've had this year with Late Late and Grammys specifically. Um, and, and with the team here and there, it's like, it's how can we make this better than people expect? And so it's pushed us, but for a good, in a good way, I think. Did you feel like your, your music background helped with this push initially? Because you, I mean, Carpool Car 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 Karaoke is the sort of obvious example of this, but your show from day one, the latest show from day one has been at the forefront musically of anything in the space by a long stretch. And that's, that, that, that shows us off in like a lot of different ways. Is that just, is that just your, your and James's taste or is that a thing where you, you guys were like, this is going to rate well. So we're going to make this push rather than, you know, some like actors or comics or whatever. I think it's James. I don't think it's me. I think it's James. I think that the best producers are the ones who work out what Melly what their talent is amazing at and then get out of the way to a certain extent. And so I think that with James, you've got this gifted, you know, what's funny is he'll do these, like, sometimes we'll have pop stars on the show and they'll be doing like a sing off and like James will have to sing a little bit worse on purpose because he's out singing them. And you're like, and people don't always expect it from him. They're like, oh my God. Like, and suddenly you're with these pop stars and they're like, see the host. And like, James is like pitch perfect. And I'll look at him and I'll be like, yeah, no, you, you sounded very good. You sounded very good, James. And he'll know he's very like, oh, okay, right. I've got to sing a bit less. So like, no, he's very musical. Um, but it's also entertainment. Like, like some shows rely on politics. Uh, some shows live for politics, it's what they do. And I think they're great at doing it. I like our show being a variety entertainment show. I think like our job on late night is to entertain everybody. I think if James was lecturing you all about, you know, what Trump was doing wrong back in the day or, you know, the Congress or blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mean we don't talk about politics. We do. Mayor Pete was on the, he's not, he's Secretary Pete now. But Judge was on the show last night. Like we, we do do politics, but it just doesn't need to define us. And so I think that, when you're looking at entertainment things, music is something that we we feel it. It's in our studio. Reggie Watts is our band leader, the coolest guy on the planet. James is an amazing singer, you know. And then when we do do politics really well, the things that have really like penetrated, you know, public domain. When we did one more day, the Les Mis spinoff, when Trump only had one day left, or when we did Maybe I'm Immune when he took that, when he had COVID and he took a drive with his drivers, you know, those were two of our highest rated things of the year. So sometimes we take our brand of entertainment and we do a political spin on it and the two worlds match really well. But I definitely think that it's more about James than it is about me. The, the success of it and, and what we do on it and everything really relies on him. And of course I'm a part of it. And so is Rob, but, but James ultimately is the man who has to step through that curtain every night and deliver and, 
whether it be online or, or on TV or however you watch him, he's, he's the reason you come to the show. Thanks so much for listening to part one of our conversation with Ben Winston. You can check in Wednesday for part two of our conversation with Ben Winston.